0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22nd, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week, we bring you an in-depth discussion with the different creative Mississippian. We talk to photographers. We talk to visual artists, musicians, people who help promote the arts in their community. Today, we're going to be talking about the literary life with Mary Miller. Uh, but first, let's acknowledge our producer, Kevin Farrell, in the studio with us. Thank you. The silent hand, Kevin Farrell. But uh, Mary Miller, you're with us today. Thank you so much. Much for coming in.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: We are catching you at the very kind of beginning of the wave of your uh, your push for this new book that's just come out.
1: Yeah, Um. so tonight I'll be at Lemuria, but yeah, the tour has just begun.
0: And uh, you were mentioning, so your new book is called Biloxi. It's your second novel, is that right?
1: Second novel and fourth book. I have two story collections as well.
0: Right. And so uh, we we were talking as we were coming to the studio and kind of it's it's you kind of live a quiet life for most of the time. And then every once in a while you have to step out into this world.
1: Yeah. You know, um, for years, a writer just kind of sits in the room and and, um, I also teach from home. So I spend a lot of time in the house. Um, And then, yeah, you have a book come out and you've got to go out there and try to get it into the hands of readers and. That involves a lot of stuff that most writers are not particularly great at or just accustomed to and um, and yeah so in a month or so I'll go back go back in my room again
0: it's like you have to switch into a whole new uh, Superman outfit for this short period huh
1: I know I was thinking I wish I had like a little robotic Mary who would just like go out and do these appearances and stuff and like be really charming and awesome of course um, but yeah. It, instead, it's just it's me.
0: Oh well, <laughs> we're doing so, pretty good so far, I think. Yeah. Um. So the new book is Biloxi, and we're gonna get into it a little bit later. But first, let's just give the uh, listeners a little bit about yourself. You were you're here. You're from Jackson originally, is that right?
1: I am. I'm from Jackson, and um, I went to Mississippi State for my undergrad. And really have spent just a lot of time in different parts of the state. I lived in Meridian for a while. I got a graduate degree at Southern Mississippi, so I lived in Hattiesburg. Um, Lived on the coast for about a year in Gulfport, and now I live in Oxford. Wow, you've done the grand Um, tour. I know, I really have done the tour. Um, I was out in Austin, Texas for a little while, but, you know, yeah, mostly I've just moved around the state a lot.
0: Well, that's good for observation, and and it kind of fits into this into this book as well in terms of setting.
1: Yeah, I am curious. I mean, the, the like the delta and the coast and the hills of Mississippi, like all of the different areas are just so particular and unique unto themselves, and they're also different. And so, I have kind of enjoyed getting to know South Mississippi, and um, I've never lived in the delta, but I travel over there a lot. We just take little weekend trips to explore it because it's so curious to me. Um, so, yeah.
0: Well, so growing up in Jackson and, and there is, you know, there's been a literary tradition with Jackson, with um, Eudora Welty living here and later on Willie Morris and Richard Wright coming here. What I know that you didn't you know, you didn't come out, come out of grade school a writer. But can you talk about any kind of things that you recall that maybe had an made an impact imprint on you?
1: Yeah, I'm a big Eudora Welty fan now. But growing up, I just, I really wasn't a big reader, and I didn't have any intention to become a writer. I didn't think it was, think of it as a, a job or a potential career choice. Um, I got a degree in psychology and worked for the Social Security Administration taking disability claims. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Um, I really came to writing and and reading later in life. Um, So it's, yeah, it's not the typical pattern of what I think, you know, a lot of young people now, they immediately, you know, go to college and study writing and, you know, I just, yeah, mine was a little less traditional.
0: So what, what was it that kind of spurred you from non-reader to diving in full force into trying to become a writer?
1: Well, I guess to say I wasn't a reader isn't exactly accurate, but I wasn't um, I would ju- just read horror novels <laughs> growing up, and I really didn't have a lot of interest in literary fiction, I okay. should say. Um, and I did I did write poetry on and off throughout my young adulthood and and childhood. and I didn't really realize that I was a terrible poet. That also, you know, when I when I started kind of writing seriously, I, I was writing poetry, and it took a while for someone to say, you know, um, Mary, you know, these are terrible. Um, <laughs> but, but you do have, you know, some talents, and I think they might be suited to prose. And so I started from there just sort of working on sentences and found sentences really fun and also something I was clearly better at. And it seems
0: from some of the interviews that I've read that kind of – the online community of writers kind of played a role in, in kind of getting you started or kind of getting you going in, yeah. the, in the pathway?
1: I did. I found a little online writers workshop, um, called Zotrope or Zoetrope. And I don't even know how I found it now, but I developed a little group of a community of writers within the larger workshop. You could have rooms where, you know, one was devoted to flash fiction and, and the people in the room aspired to write a flash a day. And so I didn't usually make that goal. That seemed like a lot to me. But I, I'm still some friends with some of these people. And that was, you know, 12 years ago or something. And, yeah, I'm still, I am still saw one just a few weeks ago in Portland when I was out there for an annual writers' conference and still keep up with a lot of them.
0: How does that work then? It was Were you kind of putting up work and the other people were commenting on it? Or how did that work?
1: Yeah, you just go in there and post um, kind of a lot like what I do now when I teach online. But you post something, everybody comments their threads, you can, you know, like them. And some people went into more detail and would actually line at it and send you Word documents. But it was it was a really, a really involved group and people who stayed there and you know, became actual friends with each other. And we lived all over the country and then sometimes all over the world. There was one lady from India that I was good friends with. And I, of course, never met her. She lives in southern India. Um, But, yeah, it was a really neat experience.
0: And I guess having that, um, at this point, you hadn't, like, been in, like, an actual physical writer's workshop or a graduate kind of seminar type of thing? Yeah.
1: At that point, I had never, I like, to my knowledge, never met another writer. Oh. I, you know, was in my later twenties and I'd never been to taken a writing class or anything like that. And yeah, I was didn't know any writers and but I met them so it was really neat. Yeah, yeah, I had I got to meet writers from all over the world, just from my home. You're listening
0: to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Mary Miller, and we're here we're talking about her new novel. We're we'll be in just a minute talking about her new novel, Biloxi. Um, you mentioned flash fiction. I just wanted to, before we left that, what, what is flash fiction?
1: So flash fiction is just um, any story that's under a thousand words. I think sometimes it varies a little bit. Some people said it at maybe 1,100 or 1,200 words. Um, and there are varieties of short fiction too. I think like a micro is 500 words. So it's just telling a story very briefly.
0: But but a complete story. You're you're kind of yeah. The on goal it. Yeah. is
1: to sort of you know tell a full complete story, and as, you know in these set amount of words, which are very limited, and it's really challenging. I um I don't do it much anymore. I find it almost impossible. The longer I write, the longer I feel like. Well, I haven't explained this enough or I have more to say. <laughs> when you first start out writing, it's great because it's really low pressure. You know, it's just a few words, you can write something in an hour or two and have it revised that day and so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of satisfaction in that just completing something even if it is very short.
0: And I guess it also gives you a sense of accomplish you, you if you succeed as it were like like in your in your online group with something, then you can kind of build from that.
1: Yeah, exactly. A lot of people a lot of um, some of the people in the group actually just still write in the flash fiction form and publish books of flash fiction and micro fiction and and more and more magazines are catering to it. So
0: when did you kind of make the leap out of just that online world to, I think you went to USM to their writing mm-hmm. program, is that?
1: Yeah, I went to the University of Southern Mississippi in 2008, and they have a PhD program in creative writing, so you can write a dissertation, um, a creative dissertation. And I I was not very well suited to the PhD program format. There's a lot of theory and a lot of things that aren't really related to what I was interested in, which is writing creatively and learning how to how to structure a story and how to edit a story and revise. And um, so I ended up dropping out after I, I did receive a master's degree there in MA. And I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I was a Michener Fellow. And it was much more just a studio-based program. It was an MFA and... The concentration really was just on fiction as opposed to all of these other things that I didn't necessarily care so much about.
0: So, USM was more kind of priming you to be a professor, maybe, and then the yeah. UT was more straight up like you're going to be a writer and giving you that For experience. Sure,
1: yeah. You know, as when I was at Southern, I had an assistantship and I taught school and I tutored and Um, The focus was more on really academic, um, whereas the Michener Center, we didn't have to work at all. They just gave us funding, and all you did was take classes, and the goal was to make writers out of you, and, you know, it was great. (laughs) It was great just getting money and not having to work, but at the same time, I think some people probably would like to go into a more academic area, and without teaching experience, of course, you can't do that, so you kind of had to do that part on your own if you wanted to but at the time it was wonderful
0: <laughs> is that like missioner as in james
1: missioner or mm-hmm. okay yeah he funded it and i don't know how much money he left to the program and it's it's just sort of like a tiny boutique program within the ut austin system and they admit i believe 12 students a year there's about 36 total in any at any time And it's it's pretty new. I think it started like in the late 90s, maybe. So, you know, uh, you look at some place like Iowa, which has been around since forever. And Flannery O'Connor went there. Um, I believe it's Flannery O'Connor. But yeah, it's a newer program. And James Michener funded it. And more of us should have read his books. I feel a little bad. <laughs> we were all just like, have you read any James Fenchner? No, but he is generous. And, my, you know, he's deceased. Did. But yes, exactly. <laughs> I think my grandparents
0: yeah. had those books for sure. I yeah. think
1: everybody's grandparents, like, yeah. gigantic
0: books, <laughs> gigantic. right? Gigantic. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. called
1: like Hawaii. Yes. You know? Yeah. I, was
0: thinking, I know that Hawaii book. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yes. And it's like from the lava coming out of the ocean, too. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I know. And were there any um, kind of name-type uh, writers teaching there that you got to interact with?
1: So Elizabeth McCracken was one of my teachers, and I was a big fan of her work. I am a big fan of her work, and she just had a novel come out pretty recently, Bowl away. I think it came out maybe in February. And, um, yeah, there were lots of great teachers. It was more of a visiting writers kind of model, so even though we did have some permanent faculty a lot of the faculty were, were there for, I mean, sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a semester. So, but that was great because we got exposure to so many different voices and, and got to meet amazing people. And some of my favorite writers came through while I, while I was there. I got to see Dennis Johnson um, just a few years before his death. And he read from his new work and um, just, yeah, lots of great visitors.
0: And was was there like an expectation like at the end you will have a book or a collection or was there?
1: So we had a thesis, you know, and the thesis was, I mean, some people did get theirs published usually in a revised form. But, yeah, the, there was a lot of, you know, not pressure to succeed. And I wouldn't even say it was competitive because – we were all funded at the same level, which made for sort of an equal playing field, which was very nice. But everybody who was there really did feel like, you know, they were ambitious. Yeah.
0: I mean, somebody yeah. doesn't accidentally walk into something like that. Well, yeah. oh. <laughs>
1: sometimes, <Okay. laughs> sometimes they do. You know, I mean, I teach at a low residency program. And even though I have some brilliant students, they're all there for different reasons. And It's not necessarily because they want to publish the next great American novel. You know, um, sometimes it's just, I need a master's because I'll get a raise as a fourth grade teacher. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that's typical, but the reasons are a lot more varied. Sure, sure. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
0: We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Mary Miller, and we're talking about her new book, Biloxi. Uh, you mentioned in the first segment that you spent some time down on the coast, and so is that kind of where the the inspiration for the kind of setting of this came from?
1: Yeah, the coast. I mean, it's such a unique place, and it was a great setting. And I think I've always kind of wanted to write something set down there. And I was living in Gulfport, and it was. Um, I started working on the book maybe fall twenty sixteen, but the book was really just inspired by the image that happens on the first page where the narrator sees he passes a house and it has a sign that says free dogs and there's some balloons tied to the mailbox too and and so that was an image that I saw as well, and I couldn't get it out of my head, and I thought, you know, who are these people that tied up some balloons with this free dog giveaway, and that was bizarre to me. Um, And I often do sort of set things kind of in climates where I'm living. When I lived out in Texas, a lot of my stories were set in Texas, and when I lived, um, you know, sort of like, if it's winter and it's snowing outside, not that we really get snow or anything, but um, you wouldn't necessarily gravitate toward writing a story about the beach but maybe you would <laughs> but it's always it's always hot and sunny down on the coast and I went to the beach every day and I used a lot of those sort of elements in the book
0: yeah and, and it's it's post-Katrina it's contemporary coast too so yeah I mean, yeah and it and but it does it offers you lots of different settings I guess that you know Jackson or Hattiesburg just were not going to have for kind of Placing your characters, right?
1: Yeah, and I used a lot of, you know, after the storm, after Katrina, all of those sort of tree stumps. There was an artist, a chainsaw artist or something, who went and made art out of them. And so there might be, he turned, you know, some of them into dolphins. And so all, I just thought, I don't know, there's so many things about the coast that are really um, just so specific to the area and things I wanted to use in a story.
0: Yeah, as soon as I saw the cha- as soon as you mentioned the chainsaw it's like, oh, it's post Katrina, you know. Yeah. It's like that that happened because those trees got killed and, and mm-hmm. the chainsaw artist Dayton Scoggins, I believe, from up in Heidelberg did that. Um, but um, so a lot of your in, in your past work before this one, a lot of your narrators or your protagonists are are female. Why why did you in this in this situation ha- come up with uh Lewis McDonald Jr
1: i um, I have no idea i've ne I had never written from the perspective of of a man before, and haven't since and um, Lewis just when I s- started writing, Lewis was there, and he immediately you know meets this other man, he sticks out his hand and introduces himself and yeah i would I would like to have some great answer of you know, I've sketched this novel, you know, and I did outlines, but I just followed this guy around, and I felt like. He was just there on the page as soon as I started writing.
0: So he kind of came out of that initial kind of just image that you saw, and that's—he mm-hmm. went in there. What did you—well, tell everybody—I'll just kind of give everybody kind of the sketch, the thumbnail sketch of uh, of the character and his deal.
1: So um, Louis McDonald Jr., he's a 63-year-old man. He lives in Biloxi, of course. He um, He's going through just a lot of life changes at the moment, he is the his father's passed away pretty recently, and he's the last living member of his nuclear family because his brother and mother are also gone. He's pretty recently divorced. Um, he thinks he's going to get an inheritance on his, <laughs> um, after his father's death, and so he's also retired from his job. So I think when the book first starts, he is just completely just pretty much housebound.
0: And so it seems like uh, as as you meet Lewis he's uh, you know he first you know connects with this dog but then kind of all his other relationships are kind of not doing so great
1: yeah, certainly there are people in his life. he has a daughter and she has a family, but he's not particularly close to her and he has His former brother-in-law is also a neighbor who routinely stops by, but he he's really not close with any humans. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he gets this dog, and and she kind of changes the trajectory of his life.
0: What do you think it is about that kind of relationship to animals? You know, I I, I've seen that. You know he um, he doesn't really he doesn't plan to get this dog. He just kind of happens upon the dog, but then he quickly is like discussing his, all his life's problems with this, you know, kind of going over every decision with the dog in conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the dogs, dogs don't judge you. So I I know a lot of people who talk to their pets. Um, But yeah, the dog is just going to sit there patiently and this dog really doesn't bark or, you know, whine. And so she just sort of, when they're driving along, she sits and stares out the window. And so he starts pointing out the sights. He thinks, (laughs) you know, the dog's interested and she'll pay attention to me. And um, But, yeah, the dog dog just kind of gets him out into the world because he, he does want to please the dog. He wants to take the dog on walks and, you know, let her chase squirrels. And he wants to get her a nice bed. And so he just has all of these little tasks and things to do.
0: Some of the scenes that I that I some of my favorite scenes in there very subtle are the the former brother in law who uh, who comes over <laughs> you can't quite tell if he's like just he's being sent over you know to make sure Lewis is still kind of like uh, upright or if he's yeah. escaping his house or that, that you never and that never quite resolves but their interactions are really interesting.
1: Yeah, thanks. I I think when I first started, you know, Frank would come over, the former brother-in-law, and he would bring Lewis leftovers from chili's usually because he knew Lewis wasn't really getting out of the house and um and so I think when the book starts, Frank does just seem like a guy who's trying to check in on, you know, his buddy and make sure he has some food to eat, but as the book does progress, I think Lewis starts to have questions about Frank and the life he imagined that Frank actually had, you know, he thought Frank and his wife were so stable and everything in his life was great. And, and he comes to see that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not all so perfect.
0: What doesn't Frank say something about like, I'm deeper than you think or so. He gives him some kind of little (laughs) Um, aside. I can't remember, but he's like,
1: yeah, I don't remember, but, but Frank's character does certainly become more complex as the book goes on.
0: And just that, um, That difficult male uh, back and forth, I think, is especially, you know, that these guys know each other, but they're not friends, but they're sharing the space. And, like, Lewis puts the television on, so there's, like, some kind of, you know, thing to generate, like, less tension, I guess.
1: Yeah, you know, they don't truly know how to interact with each other, especially now, you know. They were brother-in-law, you know, brothers-in-law, and they were considered family and now you know what does that new relationship look like and also it's just kind of two older men you know they're not they're not doing an activity like fishing or hunting you know they're just sitting in a living room and so yeah lewis will usually turn on the tv so they'll have something to focus on and something to look at besides each other
0: lewis seems to be his his kind of his um His biggest problem seems to be with his relationships with women. He's he's divorced. He has a kind of estranged daughter who's kind of in the picture. Different with other. He's meeting other women. His interactions (laughs) with just like uh, checkout people at grocery stores. Everything seems to always (laughs) kind of not quite. They're pretty awkward.
1: You know, well, Lewis has a bad habit of saying whatever he's thinking. And so, you know, that just makes situations a lot more awkward. You know, normal people, we just, we think something and we're like, okay, I got to tamp that down. I've got to, you know, move on. Um, But yeah, Lewis, Lewis often says these things. And so he's often in conflict with people, even strangers. And... Um,
0: for no reason. I mean, like he, yeah. he brings it on himself. Totally. You know? Yeah.
1: You know, there's that scene where he's at the bank and the woman get, sees it's his birthday from his license and she gives him some candy and he starts telling her how, you know, this other candy is actually better, you know, this slightly different candy. And then the, the situation, you know, this pleasant exchange becomes unpleasant for, for, yeah, no reason. And even Lewis was sort of baffled by, by his actions and He's like, you know, why did I have to say that? Why did I have to make something that was good kind of turn sour? And but I think I think, yeah, he is he is reflecting on his actions, even though, you know, he's still kind of screwing up.
0: Yeah. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Mary Miller, and we're talking about her brand new novel, Biloxi.
1: Um
0: the um Oh, I wanted to – you mentioned working for the Social Security Administration, and there is a scene where Lewis goes (laughs) into a Social Security office. So I was just curious if that – it's a really great scene because it's kind of just uh, people uh, interacting kind of friendly coworkers, and Lewis is like kind of a combination of like wanting to join in and also being really annoyed at them at the same time, but showing that life of, you know, a government office in a neat way.
1: I, I've always sort of wanted to write about my time there and I never have. So with this, you know, Lewis is retire um he's applying for his retirement benefits. And so I just got to work it in and it was it was really fun to do because yeah, for so long, for years, I I worked in a cubicle and there was just this thin partition separating me from my coworker. I mean, you know, if it wasn't there, I could have grabbed his arm. So you hear everything this person does and and says, and and we we actually became really good friends because the other option was to just despise him. He was very loud and laughed a lot, and you know, and just it was hard to you couldn't get him out of your mind, you know. So, but we did become buddies, and I kind of put that in the book.
0: Yeah, it was that intimacy of that shared space where the yeah. one the the, the female. Uh, employee is going off to the dentist and like kind of working through her anxiety (laughs) about the dentist visit and all Yeah.
1: And they're just talking, even, you know, through the partition, they can't see each other. They're just carrying on a conversation and and then she stands up so he can see her and she's showing him like where it hurts and stuff. And then Lewis gets involved. Yeah. It it was, (laughs) it was a fun scene to write. It was a weird little exchange.
0: It's a lot of fun. And, and one thing I was just wondering about and, and, Lewis is kind of a weird narrator in that he seems very confident about his opinions and then like he can't go to sleep and then he becomes he gets really wound up. So there's like things going he's kind of up and down a lot. Uh, But he does mention off and on. So he's a diabetic Mm -hmm. and he's like, I got to get to the store, and get my (laughs) medicine. So he's not taking his medicine He's not, he's eating terribly.
1: He's eating terribly. He's
0: not sleeping. So I'm wondering, is Lewis's health kind of like, I wonder, he he never kind of cops to it, you know. But I wonder about his health and how that's affecting his decision making.
1: Well, yeah, that's a really good point. He He does, you know, his diet seems to consist of cheeseburger and like deli meat, <laughs> cheeseburgers and deli meat. And then... Yeah, he does. He does have a lot of trouble sleeping. I think, you know, lack of sleep, first and foremost, just sort of does make you a little crazy. You know, I'm someone who occasionally has little bouts of insomnia and on the days you... So, I, I yeah, I, I do think it's certainly affecting all of the things in his waking life.
0: And uh, but he does seem to kind of... Um... Come to some realizations as we go on, as much as kind of like stuff is thrown at him and he's like, "Ah, whatever, you know, that especially kind of the um, at the beginning of the book, he seems very confident about this inheritance. But then you kind of slowly learn more and more as we go along that maybe he's he's not so confident of it after all
1: yeah, and the lawyer's not calling him back, so that's yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, never a good sign,
0: but I like how you sl- you slowly reveal little nuggets here and there that start putting doubts, you know, you you know, his doubts start becoming because you're really only in his yeah. head the whole time, so
1: yeah, and the book takes place over a pretty you know brief period. and so you do kind of get to see real time Lewis working things out, you know is that?
0: that perspective being just in that first person and everything coming from that person's perspective, what are the, what are the advantages and what are the challenges as a writer?
1: I always write, um, just from one person's, you know, from one narrator's point of view, and I've never written a book with, you know, like a novel with three different narrators and, I'm just, I'm not interested, I guess, in, so Lewis's perspective is obviously very skewed. And if I had, you know, maybe Maxine, his daughter, you know, narrating chapters as well, and she was like giving us a more complete picture of what was actually happening with Lewis, I don't think that that's not as interesting to me. So I think just because his perspective is so flawed and skewed, um, Yeah, that's most what I'm interested in is just capturing this one individual and not trying to get like at a greater sense of what's actually happening here, what might be akin to the truth.
0: But it it reminds me of people that might be in your life and they kind of have this very specific uh, perspective on things. And then you have to kind of say, what's the reality (laughs) (laughs) behind this anger towards this person or something like that, you know?
1: yeah and um, you know, there's a scene. I think you said something about his interactions with women. And toward the end, he really does have sort of a realization about why, you know, he doesn't get along with women so well. and he's he's pretty fearful of them. and he, he's he doesn't he wants to please them, and he's so often failed at that
0: This is an MPB think radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. Uh, it's our final segment. We're talking with Mary Miller, and she's got a new book out called Biloxi that's just come out. Um, kind of g- going back to some of the uh, kind of the process of learning how to write. Uh, I had seen in some other interviews where you talked about kind of the editing process and how much you learn from. Uh, I think you said something about you know like go read the slush pile, which is like the the the. Uh, What, the blind submission kind of 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 a journal or something?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So when I was at the University of Texas, I worked as a fiction editor and also editor-in-chief of the literary magazine out there, Bat City Review. And I, I think the main thing it taught me is for years I had just been sending stories out to magazines and getting, you know, rejections back mostly. Sometimes you'd get a hit here and there. But it always kind of felt personal. You know, any rejection always feels personal. And working for a magazine, I think I just learned that, you know, there can be a million reasons that a magazine doesn't want your story. Perhaps they're, you know, they already have stories and there are too many with that same theme. Or, you know, they're looking you just never know sort of what the editors are looking for, or what they're thinking. And so it's not always just a condemnation of the work or, a, a, you know, they're not speaking about the quality of the work necessarily. And so I just kind of learned that, yeah, don't take it personally. And also the way to get published is to keep getting rejected. You know, the more you submit stories, um, the more rejections you get, but you'll also get more publications and I did know a number of graduate students that, you know, over the years that have been so fearful of sending work out that, you know, they've just never done it. And yeah. I, and that always sort of baffled me. It's like you work so hard at this craft and you spend so much time on it. And don't you want readers? You know, it's not necessarily that you want the accolades, but don't you want people to, actually, you know, to read what you've written and spent so much time working toward
0: and I think it, it gets back to, you know, just as someone who receives grant applications from individual artists, there's such a, so much of their person is in that work, whatever it yeah. be, that that they can't separate their work from them. They, they see it as a rejection of themselves. And I know I've had mm-hmm. people I've worked in the past who who were still mad at me from 15 <laughs> years later because they felt like I, I, I encouraged, you encouraged me to apply and then I was rejected. And so that means you don't yeah. like me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know the most successful writers working today, they are still receiving rejections, you know, and that's just the, it's just how the game works. And I think it's easier too, if you sort of think of it as a game, a numbers game largely. And, and, you know, if you do send out a particular story that you like and it gets, you know, 15, 20, 25 rejections, perhaps you should look at revising it or um, maybe even put it away for a while. But but, yeah, it's it's not necessarily this is bad work or, you know, I'm rejecting you personally. And I think it's good to learn that early.
0: How do you figure out where something is you've written something short that maybe it could be where you decide, OK, I'm going to send this out or I'm going to hold this to make it something bigger that I'm going to, you know, turn into a book or a collection or something like that?
1: I was, um, I just read something the other day and it's like a, you know, a work is never finished. It's just abandoned. And I think a million writers have said that over the years, but at some point you do have to, you know, stop revising, stop editing and send something out and just call it done and move on because you can also get stuck, you know, just writing and rewriting the same story for years. And I know somebody who has done it for a decade and I'm like... You just want to grab him by the shirt and be like, you know, put it away, move on, write something else. And, yeah.
0: And so was that, did you have any kind of editorial work as part of that journal as well? And does that help kind of just close reading other people's work in that way? Mm -hmm. How does that help?
1: Yeah, the stories would come in and and I would go through them and read, you know, tons of, of author submissions from all over the country. And, um. You know, I think the best thing about being an editor, and you didn't necessarily ask this, but is finding, finding stories that you love and finding writers that you love, and then you can go read their, you know, other works of theirs and their, buy their books.
0: Yeah. Um, so, t- so you're teaching at the W— no? I am. Yeah. Uh, what kind of is, it's an online course What's what's the so it's thing? an
1: MFA program, but it's low residency. So, you know, the students live all over the country and they do their work from from their homes. And they come to campus usually once or twice a year. They have to do, I think, two short residencies and two longer residencies, which they you know, they have to do those before they graduate. But yeah, they do their coursework, you know, from their living rooms.
0: So are these, like, people who have kind of other lives? They want to do graduate school, but they can't go away, so they kind of have a career or children or something like that?
1: You know, so much of the writing life really is pretty peripatetic. You you pick up and go for graduate schools. um, You move for fellowships or different jobs. A lot of jobs are, you know, are nine months or one year here, one year there. And for low-res students, They don't have the luxury of being like, you know, all right, husband and kids and whatever, you know, we're going to move across the country for my dream. So I think, you know, just lots of different people, some of them work full time, a lot of them work full time, a lot of them have children. And the reasons that they, you know, that they get their master's are, are varied as well.
0: You're listening to the Arts Hour. Our guest today is Mary Miller, and she's got a new book out called Biloxi. Um, But I would think with that type of thing that you then you get a a broader sense of like perspective in your classes.
1: Yeah, well, you know, our program is pretty new. I started um, with Mississippi University for Women, you know, I think it was maybe 2015 is when the program started. So it's really new and we're still getting, you know, students and hoping to diversify a little bit more. Um, A lot of our students are, you know, often middle-aged older women and, you know, there's not, sometimes I, I wish, yeah, we need more men, we need more people of color, we need more, you know, different perspectives because sometimes it is a little uniform and it's, you know, um, yeah, I don't know how people find us or where we're advertising, but yes, I feel sorry for some of the guys in my class. There might be, well, you are speaking for the <laughs> every male here yeah, right male now and... Um, yeah. So, are they?
0: Uh, are you kind of? Are is there some kind of like online seminar thing where you're all together, or is it more one on one? I'm just curious about what it kind of looks like.
1: Yeah. So, for the most part, the reason people get a low res is because they need flexibility, and so for the most part, they have you know I'll post their assignments on Monday morning, and they'll have until Sunday night. Of you know to fulfill those requirements and to get their work turned in, so it's really flexible in that way. Um, we do have vid- video conferences that are for the group and also individual one-on-one, me and me and a student. Um, but yeah, for the most part, they need the flexibility, and so we try not to put too many restrictions on them, like you have to be here at this certain time and place, because it's the exact reason they weren't able to go to graduate school, you know, um, on campus. So,
0: and now you live in Oxford. I do. Yeah. So, you know, it's the writer's town. So, I I would imagine there's good things. I'm curious about. You know, there's good things in that. There's that support and interest in it. But then there's also, I'd imagine, you run into people at the grocery store, and it's like, "How's your thing coming? How's your thing coming?" You know, where maybe not in Jackson, they would be asking about, you know, "How's your book going?" or you know that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, there are there are a, a ton of us in Oxford. And it's, just, you know, I mean, for the most part, I think it's great because if you need somebody to read a draft of your work, you can find someone to swap with. And if you want to go out for a drink, <laughs> the writers are generally up for a drink. If you need to commiserate about something you won or didn't win or not commiserate about a, a win. But, you know, yeah, there's always somebody to talk to who's, who knows what you've been you're going through and who knows um, what your life is like. And so I think that's really great. And I've never had that before to this degree, you know, outside of school.
0: Yeah, there's a visibility there for writers that's just yeah. not anywhere else.
1: Yeah. yeah, and Square Books is just such an integral part of the community. And, you know, Richard and Lisa, who own the bookstore, are such an integral part of the community. I've never lived—I mean, Mississippi, I think—well, Oxford is just unique in that way, that the town does really revolve around this bookstore. It's sort of wild.
0: Yeah, and and, yeah, the seasons and stuff are kind of like connected to the bookstore as well when these things are happening. Well, if people are interested in your book, where should we send them, online or elsewhere?
1: Um, So I would love it if you went to your local independent bookstore, Lemuria, Square Books, Pass Books, um, Turn Row. We have so many in the state, and um, you can also find it really anywhere online that sells books, um, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And
0: you have uh, shorter pieces up with some online uh, publishers as well, right? Uh, uh, Magazines and that.
1: I do, yeah. I'll have a piece in the new um, Oxford American that should be out now. And you can find my work online. um, MaryUMiller.net is my website, and it has links to some of my work as well.
0: Very good. Well, Mary, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Uh, for those of you who uh, have turned in late and you'd like to share the show with a friend, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org. The Arts Hour has its own page there, and we they post all of our past shows there, and you can share them with your friends or listen to them online. You can also find us in, in your uh, podcast provider, wherever you get your podcasts for your iPhone or your home computer, wherever. Uh, take a look. Search for Mississippi Arts Hour. We'll be there as well. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.